Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. University of Utah geographers have published a new study, Geographies of Organized Hate in America, a regional analysis. That's being published in the Annals of American Association of Geographers. The study seeks to understand the factors fueling hate across space. The main findings? Hate is a national phenomenon and more complicated than imagined. The researchers mapped the patterns of active hate groups in every U.S. county in the year 2014 and analyzed their potential socioeconomic and ideological drivers. Richard Medina is assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Utah, senior author of the study. He says hate is a geographic problem. The ways people hate are based on cultures, histories, ethnicities, and ethnicities, and many other factors dependent on place and place perception. So today we're going to talk with Richard Medina and another author of the study, Emily Nicolosi, a doctoral student in the University of Utah Department of Geography. Professor Medina, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. And uh, Emily Nicolosi, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So uh, before we jump in, I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room for some of our listeners who may have noticed today is Valentine's Day and we're uh, launching into a discussion of hate. Um, so that's just how it worked out <laughs> this year. Um, important uh, topic. Um, maybe about half of our audience won't care. Well, the other half might uh, have a little bit of heartburn. I would uh, direct uh, our listeners, after you listen to this interesting discussion, uh, go online, Google Access Utah and Valentine's Day, and you'll see, uh, you'll be able to hear a, a very nice program from last year. Uh, when we talked to San Francisco-based writer Dan Moore on his lovely column titled, I Love Valentine's Day Because I Love Her. Anyway, uh, Professor Medina and Emily Nicolosi, uh, happy Valentine's Day to you. Thanks, same to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Professor Medina, uh, you have said your interest in this subject, uh, the, the hate across space, uh, has stemmed from earlier studies that you've done on global terrorism. Uh, how so? Well, you know, terrorism and hate are, are research-wise, are connected a little bit here. You know, both of these things um, run on different cultures. You know, you have cultures of violence, cultures of hate, cultures of bias. So I think, you know, and and I think there's a big connection between these things. Um, and actually, the, the State Department or, or you know, government agencies have said in recent times that a, a bigger threat for the U.S. today is um, hate and bias and, and um, nationalist groups in the U.S. Um, more so than than international terrorism like Al Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, so the domestic groups, right? Yeah, um, and and that I don't know may even be increasing. You know, post twenty sixteen, it seems to be increasing. At least with the data that we have, it looks like it's increasing. It 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 was at an all time high during the Obama administration, then it started to drop toward the end of that administration. And now it's picking up again. Um, so, Emily Nicolosi, um, you, you took definition of hate group and I guess the list of hate groups from uh, Southern Poverty Law Center? Yes. Let's see, you're, you're cutting out. Let's see if we can get you back here. Oh, sorry, can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Yes, that's right. We got um, our list of hate groups from the Southern Poverty Law Center. And what kinds of, there's all kinds of groups, I, and, you know, reading the study, I, I discovered some groups I hadn't even known about. One of those groups, there are a couple of groups in Utah, I understand. Um, yes, that's right. Uh, I believe there's one or two in Utah, 
Um, and I believe that one of them is the uh, fundamentalist LDS church. Is that correct, Rich? Yeah. There's that one, and I think we have the uh, the Vanguard, which is a white nationalist group also. Yeah. Hadn't been aware of Vanguard. Of course, we're all familiar with the FLDS church. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they're listed as a hate group. They are, by the SPLC. Yeah. How does the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center de- describe it, or how do you describe hate group? What, what's the definition? Well, typically we're looking at groups, and, and it's not just the SPLC. You know, the definition is, is relatively straightforward. If you look at different agencies in the U.S., the FBI, they, they all define hate. And, and instead of using the term hate, sometimes they use bias. But you're looking at a bias against a whole group of people for some characteristic or multiple characteristics. So I guess the stereotypical would be, you know, white nationalist groups who seek to define themselves and then, I guess, in part by defining who, who's not in the group. Sure, and all these groups define them. It's a self and other, you know, thing. Um, not just white nationalists, but, but you have uh, separatist groups and different religious groups, and they all, they all do the same thing. They define a self and another. Uh, so, um, what's the connection? You treat this in the in in your paper. Uh, connection between hate groups and hate crimes. You know, not all hate groups would would uh, lead to hate crimes. Yeah, I mean, there's really no definitive um, connection between hate groups and hate crimes. I think um, we saw some correlation based on the counties we looked at, but we nobody can really say for sure. And and at some level. One of the things we want to see is organized nonviolent hate because people should be able to express their opinions. Um, if they have bias against somebody, we have the freedom to do that in the country, um, but we, we want to stop that before it becomes violent. I, I see. So the understanding would, is, would be crucial, understanding the specifics of why these groups hate, how they operate, um, before, it, before it gets to Yeah, of course. We, violence, we all right? want to understand from all these groups. The, the thing is, and, and one of our questions is, if we allow groups to organize this way, um, does that somehow uh, minimize violence, right? Because they're getting their their uh, aggressions out in a different way. Hmm. R- right, right, yeah. It, it's um, If they feel expressed, if they feel heard, uh, maybe they don't move to violence. Right, we hope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emily and Nicolosi, what uh, what are some of the factors that you looked at? You you went to I guess all of the counties in the U.S. This is from 2014. Um, yes, that's correct. So some of the variables that we looked at um, on the county level were percent of the population that's white, um, percent at poverty level, percent population change over changing communities. Um, and percent of the population with a bachelor's degree or higher. And then we also um, looked at some ideological variables, which was uh, percent of the population that's affiliated with some religion um, and percent of the population that's Republican. Uh, so, yeah, a variety of factors. Uh, what uh, Maybe we could take those uh, sort of one by one, um, starting with uh, Professor Medina. What... Uh, so education levels, did you find a correlation? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's correlations with, with all the variables, albeit, you know, different correlations throughout the country. And that's one of the main points here is that you can't apply any of these variables as correlates to the whole country 
with the same results, right? So, so the, they all act in different ways, or they have different strengths of correlation in different regions of the U.S. Different strengths, okay. Um, for instance, can you maybe contrast a couple of regions? Yeah, so would you, would you, which one did you ask about education? <clears throat> yeah, education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you look at the education variable across the whole U.S., at the county level, if you have fewer people that are educated at the bachelor's degree level or higher, then you have more hate groups, just in general. Now, that said, that correlation, that negative correlation, is stronger in middle America, um, in parts of the South, in in parts of the Midwest. And and if you move out toward the coasts, it's still there, but it's not as strong. So it, it doesn't have as much of an effect on that, on the hate variable. Do we do we know why? Have a theories as why? Not yet. I, most of this research was was exploratory, just to see if 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 this was the case. If if because we all have these preconceived ideas that these these very specific variables affect the way people hate in the U.S. But we didn't know to what extent, and and. I think we all understand that, that this is a regional thing. If you look at different regions of the U.S., they hate differently, right? We have different hate groups in the South than we do in the West Coast, than we do in the Northeast. So we're trying to, to get at um, the complexities of the relationships between these variables and, and hate groups. By the way, just stepping back, um, there are, I don't know, some 900 hate groups listed in the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, that's, it's a lot of hate. It could be a little depressing. It is, but if you're considering the whole country, I think, and it is depressing, I, I don't want to, you know, say it's not, but if you're considering the whole country, um, we have a lot of people living here and, and it's a relatively low number. Mm-hmm. Uh, has, has it, uh, as a whole, has it grown over time? Do you think that, I mean, the number of hate groups, the uh, number of people who are expressing these views? It seems like um, there's sort of ebbs and flows with hate. So um, if you, the Southern Law Poverty Center um, does track the number of hate groups over time. We were kind of at a low around the year 2000, um, then followed by a peak around 2004, another low around 2005, and then the number of hate groups kind of exploded around 2010. Um, followed by a drop near 2014, and then right after this most recent presidential election seemed to be on the rise again. So uh, 2010, I would have thought maybe, you know, if I'm just wildly guessing, it would have piked more, uh, sp- uh, spiked more around 20, you know, 2008. So 2010, do we know, do we think we know why? Yeah, so they actually started, uh, they started rising around 2008 and reached sort of a peak in 2010. Okay. Um, so we don't know why yet. I think um, that would require further research. Uh, it seems like, you know, you're hinting at here, is there a correlation perhaps with political cycles? Uh, that could be, but we don't know for sure yet without doing more research. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, you you would you know think so if, uh, if President Trump, for example, is... Um uh, you know, openly acknowledging white supremacist groups, maybe they'd feel emboldened, that sort of thing. But we don't, I guess we had, haven't nailed that down with data at this point. 
Uh, no, that's correct. Um, but yes, anecdotally, we might uh, make some uh, conclusions like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so what are some of the, so for example, ethnic diversity, that you, there is some co- correlation, a county, for example, with higher ethnic diversity or lower ethnic diversity, there, there would be a correlation with hate groups, I suppose. Um, yes, again, it does uh, vary across the country. Um, in general, we do see uh, with the variable that we looked at, which was percent population change over the past five years, uh, that uh you know, greater population change is associated with fewer hate groups. Um, but the strength of that relationship is stronger along the East Coast and along the West Coast. So, yeah, the, the intensity is different. That's interesting. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Do, do we think we know why? It's really hard to say at this point. Um, I think we do need to do more research on... In general, we might think about how those different places have, you know, different histories of immigration, uh, different cultures, different attitudes towards immigration, and so on. So those types of things um, may be contributing to the different relationships in different places. Richard Medino, <coughs> yes, go ahead. Those regions um, deal with diversity and, and incoming and out- outgoing flows of people. Uh, so whether I guess people may be more used to uh, other peoples. Right, and not just more used to, but more accepting of other mm-hmm. peoples and cultures coming and going. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, we talked about education level. Is in, in, We'll jump, uh, maybe have you jump directly to solutions, and we'll loop back. But I think one of the takeaways that I read from the paper is that if we if we were to take this to policymakers right now, we would have to tell them it is complicated. You, you can't just increase education um, and solve the problem. Right, of course. I, I think, you know, if for, for specific regions, if, if you could look at this type of research and say, look, we really need to... to uh, strengthen education in this region. We we need to increase diversity. Uh, maybe poverty is not such an issue here, as it's not a struggle over resources and money, because hate can be directed at all different types of issues. Uh, so, what are some of the other factors? Uh, you mentioned economic levels. So, so poverty sometimes a driver here. Poverty can be a driver, and it's actually more of a driver in um, the western U.S. About west of Texas or so, uh, in the northeast, it's not such an issue. Although, it's there, again, there's still a positive connection, but it's not as strong. Hmm. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about uh, this uh, study. We have uh, two of the authors of the study. Richard Mendina is Assistant Professor of Geography at University of Utah, and uh, Emily Nicolosi is a doctoral student in that department. Um, they are authors along with a couple of other authors of a new study, Geographies of Organized Hate in America, a Regional Analysis. That's uh, being published in the Annals of the American Association of Geographers. Seeks to understand the factors fueling hate across space. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're talking about a a new study uh, out from... uh, University of Utah Geographers, it's uh, called Geographies of Organized Hate in America, a Regional Analysis. 
trying to understand factors fueling hate across uh, different areas of the U.S. Uh, what the researchers did, they mapped patterns of active hate groups in every U.S. county in the year 2014, tried to find uh, patterns. And, of course, uh, this has application for policymakers and the rest of us who are trying to uh, combat hate and uh, especially violence. Um, we have with us Richard Medina, who's assistant professor of geography at the University of Utah, and Emily Nicolosi, doctoral student at the University of Utah, a couple of authors of the study. So, Richard Medina, uh, we talked about this earlier. Um, what's your biggest hope from from the knowledge gained in, in this study? Prevent violence? That'd be the, at the top of the list? Well, again, we don't know the connection between violence. If, if hate groups are, are minimizing violence already, then I say go ahead and form your hate group, right? The, the biggest, I, I think, what, what we want to get at is, is really, you know, it's a really politically charged term. We, we talk about hate all the time, especially today, uh, and not Valentine's Day, of course, but I mean, in general, <laughs> today, you know, today we, there's a lot of talk about hate. And I, I think we really need to look at it and um, better understand it because it's, it's not a simple thing. Uh, I'd like to maybe take a side trip uh, just briefly to your your earlier studies on terrorism. Um, they're going. What, what are you? What's your What's your hope? I guess you know prevent violent acts by terrorists, right? Um, greater understanding can sure. can help with anti-terrorist uh, efforts. Uh, yeah, of course. With the research on terrorism, of course, we we want to decrease the amount of terrorism globally, right? Um, but along the lines of of this research too, we all have to work harder to try to understand uh, different people and, and, and the issues different people are having. You know, I want to understand why people have bias against immigrants or, or bias against you know, whoever that may be. Again, I want, with terrorism, I want to understand why um, terrorists want to blow specific places up. Right? So it kinda, it's, there's a very similar goal in the end for all this research. And it's interesting to uh, apply the, the tools of a geographer to this. Uh, and, and you're saying that one of the key takeaways here is that uh, differences in the factors depending on place. Right. So, you know, place builds culture a lot of times, and, or, or it interacts with culture. And actually, if you have a lot of immigrant streams coming into a specific place, that changes the culture of the place. So all these things we can consider to be, you know, placial. Right, um, it's everything's connected to place. If I hate immigrants for some reason, they're coming into my place and affecting, you know, the identity of the place, and in turn, my own identity. Yeah, and you, you've you've said a couple of times here, um, and it it makes sense to me. I wonder if you just expand on it. Um, that if it prevents some, if someone has a hateful ideology. And they're able to express it, and if that prevents a hate crime, then so much the better. Let them, let them talk away, right? Sure, and, and we have the freedom to do so in this country. We have the freedom to hate. We don't have the freedom to act out in violence with that hate. But if people want to get together and discuss their biases, I have no problem with that. And, and I don't know if any of us should really have a problem with that. You know, it's a free country. Um, and and sometimes it seems, you know, that maybe if people express their anger and their biases and they have a group that they can do that with, then maybe it, it does uh, give them a feeling like they're being heard and, and they don't have to act out in violence. Of course, this would apply to terrorism as well. If, uh, if, if a potential terrorist 
feels like he or she has a forum and, and is being heard and accepted, then perhaps they won't resort to violence. It's possible. You know, the biggest driver of terrorism is marginalization. You know, when we start to marginalize people in a society, um, the, the first step, you know, to extremism is bias or hate, and the next step is, is potentially going to be uh, some type of violence or terrorism. It's the same here. These people feel marginalized in the country, and, and their reaction to that is some type of bias against others. Of course, we're framing this as prevention of violence, I guess, on it, just on its face. People spewing hatred through whatever medium, uh, you know, not a good thing. No, and it's, it's, it is very complicated. It, you could have these people spewing their, their hate uh, on a national scale, and maybe that uh, triggers other people in the country to act violently. I don't know. Again, it's, it's a really complicated phenomenon that we, we don't understand as well as, as a country, I don't think. But it's, it's easy for us to throw around this term, you know, people are being hateful or you hate these people, but without understanding all those complexities, it's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of damaging. Emily Nicolosi, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about identity. That's important here, right? Uh, people um, resort sometimes to hateful ideologies because they feel like their identity is being uh, violated or, or threatened. Um, yes, that's correct. Um, so like Rich was saying, as geographers, we think about place a lot. Um, and when we think about place and identity, there's really a strong connection there. So you might even think in your own personal experience, you know, maybe you're very strongly attached to Utah or Salt Lake City or some other place in Utah. Um, and you, you maybe have particular ideas uh, uh, or visions about how that place should be. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think when it becomes dangerous is uh, when people have certain ideas about who does and doesn't belong in a place that they sort of love and identify with strongly. Uh, that's when we can see sort of these ideologies that lead to hate groups and hate crimes arise. Yeah, so identity connected to place. And, of course, that's what you're studying place by place. Richard Medino, I wonder if you could expand on that to what... Um um, t- uh, how this is tied up with place. Yeah, I mean, I think for all of us, identity is always connected to place. And, and place, again, is, is a tricky subject. It's not just a location. It's, it's how we identify with that location. And, and just in general, when we think of a place, it's, it's actually we envision that as a place in space and time. You know, when I think of a place in my youth, I don't just think about, you know, cities in California, but cities in California in the 80s, right? So... So we all identify with places, and I and our identity is built on that. And sometimes what happens is, you know, in, in the case with anti-immigrant streams, those people that are biased against immigrants, they see the immigrant stream coming in, and then um, that's affecting their their placial identity. Mm. And so you said, you know, uh, t- over time as well. So history comes in a perception of a p- person's perception of history of that place. Right, perception of, of space and time. And, and this happens at different scales, too. We have perceptions of what Salt Lake City is or what Logan is. We have perceptions of what Utah is. We have perceptions of what um, the United States is. And then we, it moves up to the Western world. And, and all these things build for us um, some type of idea of what that place is supposed to be. Hmm. Uh, Emily Nicolosi, um, so 
identity is, is ba- based on place, based on also culture. And, and culture is very much tied up in place. Of course, yeah. Um, both of those things are are very important in the way that we think and feel about places. And I think um, another important thing um, that happens with people's uh, place identification um, when they uh, perhaps perceive a threat from outsiders is that um, it's not just about their identity, but they perceive some threat to their socioeconomic security. So they worry, you know, in total bill terms, that people coming in are going to take their jobs away. Mm. Uh, one of the factors here was um, political conservatism, Richard Medina. The, the, you you tested for that in each of these places. Yeah, we we looked at, at political conservatism. We used the, the variable uh, percent of Republicans in the region, but it wasn't it wasn't as straightforward. The, our ideological variables weren't as straightforward in effect as the socioeconomic variables. Only in two relatively small regions in the U.S. did. Uh, the percent of Republicans uh, correlate with more hate groups. Um, for the most, for the most of the country, it's, it, there was no correlation we could find. Where was there a correlation? Um, in, in parts of, of the East Coast, we saw some correlation uh, uh, near Virginia and West Virginia, North Carolina, in, in a small strip there, and also in a strip from from Texas, riding up into the. Um, into the Midwest, but but generally no correlation for most of the for most of the uh, country. There wasn't much correlation. No, yeah. uh, it sounds like we've lost uh, Emily. So we're going to try to uh, reconnect with her. Uh, we do have uh, Richard Medina with us, uh, who is a professor of geography at the University of Utah and uh, lead author of this uh, study that we're talking about. Emily Nicolosi also an author, and uh, she is a doctoral student at the University of Utah. The study is titled Geographies of Organized Hate in America, a Regional Analysis. Um, so you looked at a, a, a bunch of potential drivers for, for hate. Um, was there one of those drivers that particularly stood out in a lot of regions, or was it all just a kind of a mix? You know, the, the most, the, the variable that stood out the most was the percent religious. I think, you know, for all the other variables, we either had a, a full positive correlation or a full negative correlation, or or like the, the conservative variable, we had some positive, but the rest was, was no uh, real correlation we could find in the country. But the percent religious was relatively striped. We saw positive and negative correlations throughout the country, and, and again, this is going to require more research to find out why, but, but what we do see is that if, if you have more conservative religions, it looks like, or it, it operates with the conservative variable, you have more hate groups. And, and this would differ by region or place? It, yeah, it, it all differs by region, but the same region we're finding more conservative connection to hate groups, we're also finding more religious connection to hate groups. Now, outside of that, religion actually seems to minimize or, or decrease the, the amount of hate groups within the counties. Uh, 
So where where, where are some of these places where, where you have this double correlation with uh, conservatism and uh, conservative religions? Yeah, again, that's this strip uh, coming up from Texas into the Midwest and also uh, states including Virginia and West Virginia and North Carolina and the, on the east. Mm. If you if you see there are regions that where religion has a negative correlation with hate groups, meaning more religious adherence um, correlates with fewer hate groups. That's the West Coast and other Western states like Utah and Wyoming and Idaho and Montana, and then the North Northeast uh, of the country, as well as another strip in the South uh, moving through um, Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee. Do you do you have a theory as to why in some areas it does it doesn't correlate? Um, you know, we we have some ideas. I think you know it it could be the the specific religions in these regions. It could be the culture of religion in the region. Um, but outside of that, it's it's hard to say again without further research. What about the uh, FLDS in in Utah? I, I had not I I had not thought of them as a hate group. I guess uh, Southern Poverty Law Center list them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they list them, and and Utah again has maybe two or three hate groups operating, or or at least that the SPLC has picked up as hate groups being active in in the state. Um, Utah is on the lower end. We don't have a lot of hate groups compared to other states like California, and New York, and and even Washington D.C. has has a lot. Um, and and we're not sure why it's it's cultural of course it's historical maybe we're more accepting of of other people and diversity in the state um but but yeah we we still have a few so uh, previous research has focused on why people hate and you're looking at drivers of hate uh, differentiated over specific places that previous research what um what did that research posit on why people hate well there are all different kinds of reasons and and a lot of it we we spoke on here today. If, if you're talking about identity or threat, and often oftentimes, if you look at why people hate, it's based on some type of threat that they feel uh, or fear of something. Again, fear of losing identity, and and the people that that do have biases don't frame it that way. They don't frame it as a fear, but if you look at it, they're afraid of something, right? They're afraid of losing their identity or their jobs to immigrants, or or they're afraid of uh, specific cultures changing the identity of that place. Um, but we, it seems like that's the largest driver is this, you know, is, is the, the fear of change or, or the effects on the identity or, or socioeconomic uh, resources. And then you, you've drawn a line with, you know, very logical, if, if a person perceives a threat to identity or whatever it is, and then that can turn to fear, and then that fear can turn to hate. Right. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's generally accepted in, in the in the scientific literature today. You know, the, the the threat turns to fear, the fear turns to hate, the hate has the potential to turn to violence in some cases. And of course, you're a geographer. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'll just point this out, and uh, we can let our listeners underline it or not if they want. But uh, probably not a good idea for our politicians to be. Um, scapegoating particular groups, encouraging this sort of thinking, because uh, some people are prone to it anyway. Yeah, I don't, you know, and it's it's my opinion that I, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, I don't think we should be scapegoating 
groups for different things, you know, and there's there's different arguments about all this stuff. But again, if we go back to what it is, it's it's really a, a case of identity. Um, people accept certain things. You know, a lot of the people today are, are struggling with their values, right? What what do their values say? And then that drives their vote or, or their opinions on specific things. But no, I don't think that's a good idea. I believe we have Emily Nicolosi back with us. Do we have you with us? Yes, I'm here. Okay, we apologize for that. Uh, we uh, dropped your call somehow. Um, so I wonder, um, you know, you've uh, done this research um, and look at the drivers of hate over over space. I wonder if there's some takeaways that you that you come to that really stand out to you from the study. Yeah, you know, so I think um, if we look at sort of what came out of the study, at least with uh, the few variables that we analyzed, there seems to be some indication, um, like with the percent population change variable that we use, that uh, when people perhaps are more accustomed to to diversity, to uh, you know, different populations coming in and out of a place, uh, that that might lead to less hate, and an indication that you know, we're actually have experiences with and interactions with people who, you know, maybe don't have the same racial background or sexual orientation, um, things of that nature. Uh, let's see, you're cutting up a little bit there, but I think we got okay. uh, what, what you said. Uh, so, okay. uh, Richard Medina, what, what's, what are the biggest takeaways for you in this study? You know, I think we need to, to be more accepting as, as a people. I think is is the biggest takeaways. Instead of like you said earlier, scapegoating people for different things, um, we need to understand that other cultures and other people are uh, have great qualities like we all do. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, get into uh, solutions. We referenced that a little bit earlier in the program. Maybe emphasize that uh, again in our last segment. Um, it's complicated, but uh, perhaps our researchers could tell us what they would suggest to policymakers uh, more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a, a new study out from uh, University of Utah geographers. Uh, the study is titled Geographies of Organized Hate in America, a Regional Analysis. It's being published in the Annals of American Association of Geographers and seeks to understand the factors fueling hate across a geographic space. And uh, main takeaway, it's a national phenomenon, they say, and complicated. Uh, they mapped um, patterns of active hate groups in every U.S. county in the year 2014 and analyzed their potential socioeconomic and ideological drivers. And we're talking with the lead author, Richard Medina, assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Utah. And another author of the study is uh, Emily Nicolosi, a doctoral student in the University of Utah Department of uh, Geography. Uh, so I want to uh, turn to recommendations. Um, so Richard Medina... It's complicated. One of the one of the takeaways here, uh, no one factor, I guess. What would if you had the ear of of policymakers? What uh, what would you tell them? Well, you know, I think the big thing here is that the, those policymakers need to understand or better understand their own regions. You know, they need to understand the people in their regions, the changes that are going on, the levels of education and poverty, and all these things that that we've talked about, and and put all that together and try to. Um, 
minimize you know the bias against against others. Uh, Emily Nicolosi, I apologize for that. <laughs> Emily Nicolosi, uh, similar question to you. What uh, what would your recommendations be based on the study? Yeah, so I think one of the things um, that we found was that uh, educational levels tended in in some places to uh, decrease the amount of hate groups or to be associated with fewer hate groups. Um, and I think that perhaps goes to show uh you know, especially college-level education can really uh, play a role in sort of opening people's minds and exposing them to new and different ideas. Um, and I think in another also looking at um, the uh, religious uh, factor, I think that, you know, perhaps religious institutions could also play some type of educational role um, you know, in exposing perhaps their congregations to um, to ideas that would perhaps increase tolerance uh, for people who are different than themselves. Richard Medina, earlier we talked about uh, perhaps it's good to have a uh, you know a release valve if a person has hateful ideology. That uh, you know, it's obviously better for them to be expressing that and feeling heard than than to resort to violence. But I wonder, um, on on the side of you know, average citizen, um, what can we what can we do? What should we do? Do you think should we be out there in the marketplace of ideas, um, trying to contest these these hateful ideas or just ignore them? What uh, what do you think? You know, I I think that's up to each and every citizen and how they feel about those ideas, you know, um, any organized group has the freedom to express their bias however they want, and the citizens have the freedom to express their own bias. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that's up to every single one of us to, to see how we deal with that, and it's best to deal with that, I think, through, um, again, accepting uh, diversity, um, maybe letting other people's other people know um, that your culture isn't a threat, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Emily Nicolosi, same question to you. Is, should we engage or not, do you think? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we all have a responsibility um, to be engaged. You know, we have to think uh, people like their aggressions out forming a hate group, Um people to be heard at an emotional level, I think that we can do, you know, to try um, and reach out to others and, I guess, um, humanity, I think. I wonder, uh, so what, uh, yes, Professor. Oh, oh, I thought you were speaking. Uh, so let me direct this question to you. Um, so, uh, what's what's next? You think um, what what are you uh, going to be studying next? Well, you know, we've we've talked about many times. We've said how, how complicated this is, so or, or complex, and we really need to get into more research. Whether it's uh, we're talking about potentially releasing surveys and trying to understand the problems in different regions, um, but we need to to break down the hate groups and the different types of hate groups, I think, because we're looking at just general hate right now and all organizations, but we need to start looking at separately the nationalist groups and the racist groups and the skinhead groups and all these different groups, um, the neo-Nazi groups. 
Um, and we also need to look at different types of religions because that's our most interesting variable here, and we don't really understand um, why that's really affecting hate organization differently throughout the U.S. Emily Nicolosi, what uh, what next for you? What do you want to study? Um, yeah, so I think... Uh, sorry, I'm just going to switch phones here. I think I have a better connection. Okay. Um, yeah, like Rich was saying, I think that it one of the important things that we might look at are the different types of religions that are in different places to see if there might be uh, differences in the ways that those are operating in relationship to hate. Um, I think we have more work to do, perhaps, in looking specifically at the different regions that came out of the study, and then perhaps getting into uh, some survey-based or ethnographic field work in those places to kind of hone in on, you know, what specific perceptions uh, and so on are are driving hate in those specific regions. Very interesting. Uh, before we let you guys go, um, I wonder, uh, is there a profile you could give me of, you know, just honing in on the western U.S., or perhaps Utah specifically, in terms of um, hateful ideologies and, and what specific factors are driving those in the West or in Utah? Yeah, like I said, Utah is really tricky. Um, we don't have that many hate groups in Utah. That doesn't mean people aren't hating, but they're not organizing to do so, and, and I'm not sure what, what the factors are in limiting that. Now, if you if you step west to, to California, they have a lot of hate groups up and down the coast. Um, maybe they feel um, that within that culture they have more freedom to say what they want. Maybe they feel freer in California. I'm not sure. Um, one of the things we're looking at doing in Utah is, is running some, some local research to, to really try to understand these communities and, and relationships with with hate groups or just hate in general. So... So that's coming in for the research. Um, but there are different, throughout the whole West, there there are different cultures of hate. You're going to see a lot of white nationalism and people that have moved to the Northwest uh, um, to to live in communities that are less diverse, uh, where they can organize under different biases. Um, also, Nevada, you have a lot of hate groups, and, and Arizona. Um, but, it, again, it's it's different for every region. We have a lot of anti-immigrant hate. We have a lot of neo-Nazi hate in the West. Um, but it's not that you don't see that in other regions either. Emily Nicolosi, same question to you. Uh, anything stand out to you and to a particular driver of hate or a particular demographic uh, uh, information regarding the West or Utah? Yep. Um, so I think something interesting about the West um, is that it does appear uh, to have uh, some really uh, strong patterns um, and to follow those patterns in relationship, like basically from, you know, west of Texas through California. And um, one of the things that we found is that, you know, uh, the percent of religious adherence is associated with fewer hate groups in the west and also that the percentage of the population affiliated with the Republican Party uh doesn't seem to have much of a relationship with hate groups. So we see kind of the West emerging as this uh, this sort of unique region. Um, and again, I think 
that this is a it's a very complicated phenomenon and we do we do need to do a lot more research to to understand you know why is the west uh behaving like it does um you know what factors are driving that and then like uh, what sort of policy implications there might be for this region so Richard Medina, uh, one of the takeaways here is, is it's complicated, a lot of factors. With further study, do you have hope that something very, very clear will be identified, which could easily be um, addressed with, with policy? You know, I, I think we're on our way to better understanding this phenomenon. Uh, you know, I think it's going to take more research and more researchers and more agencies getting involved in, in, in this type of research. Um, I think things will get better, but I, I don't think you can solve bias. You know, I, I think bias is inherent in humans. I, I think at some level it's it's some security, you know, trait that we have. Uh, maybe it's connected to, to fight or flight. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not that type of, of scientist, but... Well, I think things will get better, and we'll understand how to better uh, communicate, so that so that people will will have less bias. Um, I don't think you can solve it. Mm-hmm. Emily Lincolnosi, degree can't really solve it. it's inherent, but uh, as you study it, I guess let me ask it this way: Do you come away with tools on a personal level? Do you think? Um, yeah, you know, uh, I think that there's. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we can do on the, on a personal level. Like I was saying before, I think any time that we can go out of our way, um, to time to learn about perhaps cultures and religions that are different than our own, again, to recognize that, you know, we're all sort of looking for a good life, um, including people like immigrants, including perhaps people with different sexualities than our own. Um, and, yeah, I think all of those things could contribute to to less hate. Well, very interesting uh, study, and of course we'll uh, be hearing more about this as the studies go on. Uh, the study is Ge- Geographies of Organized Hate in America, a Regional Analysis. It's being published in the Annals of American Association of Geographers. We've had two of the authors of the study on with us. Richard Medina, so Assistant Professor of Geography at University of Utah, thanks so much for being with us. And Emily Nicolosi, a doctoral student in the University of Utah Department of Geography. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And uh, we're going to go out today with uh, the latest episode uh, in our series, Bread and Butter. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Recently, as packages moseyed along the conveyor belt between us, The clerk paused to look closer at my bag of riced cauliflower. I've been meaning to try this, she said. At first, I felt a little foolish. I quickly related how easily riced cauliflower mixes into a bowl of actual rice, amping up the veggie quotient. She accepted the tip graciously, responding, Good to know. I'm 18 years old, and I just started eating vegetables one year ago. Intrigued, I asked, What do you think? Have you found a favorite? Without hesitation, she launched into a vivid description of baby zucchini, lightly sautéed and topped with garden-fresh marinara sauce. Wow, I thought. Maybe it took some time, but she already gets it. A solid relationship with vegetables, especially one late in coming, 
is nurtured less on the shoulds of eating and more on the satisfaction. Vegetables can rise to the status of comfort food or cravings when we discover the leafy and cruciferous plants that best fit our tastes. Like dating, finding our sole plate of vegetables can be an exercise in patience and flexibility. I remember when I first laid eyes on cauliflower. It was not love at first sight. The bulbous, pale curiosity languishing in my crisper looked even more pale and lifeless after a thorough steaming. Repeatedly reminding myself of cauliflower's impressive nutrient resume didn't help, nor did submerging florets in unadvisable amounts of cilantro hummus. Then, ten years ago this month, Cook's Illustrated breathed new life into our stale relationship with one word. Listen for it in this introduction by the magazine's recipe designers. We wanted to add flavor to cauliflower without drowning it in a heavy blanket of cheese sauce. So we developed a roasted cauliflower recipe that gave us cauliflower with a golden exterior and a creamy interior. Steaming in a covered sheet pan, followed by roasting, produced nicely caramelized cauliflower and a creamy texture. Creamy? Caramelized? Stop. You had me at roasted. Suddenly, cauliflower and I were spending a lot of time together. It even introduced me to other broiled beauties. Roasted Brussels sprouts, asparagus, and broccoli all expanded my appreciation of the plant kingdom, then took on new possibilities. An emboldened confidence opened my plate to new vegetable flavors and preparations. Sometimes we hit it off. Avocados, my new best friend. Other times, the connection fizzled. Artichokes were too high-maintenance. Encouraged by the My Plate initiative to fill half your plate with fruits and veggies, I expanded opportunities for plants to shine. No longer relegated to trays and side dishes, vegetables took main stage. Enter spicy cauliflower curry. Comforting butternut squash soup with a touch of nutmeg. Over time, I even came to love the sweet, satisfying crunch of a raw cauliflower floret. This new year, here's to finding your soul plate of vegetables. It could be the start of a beautiful relationship. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter.